Hey, the passage today is Mark 16. It's our final sermon through the book of Mark. So if you have your Bible, grab it. Thanks, Grassy. Did you just say wow? Excellent. So yeah, go ahead, turn to Mark 16. Mark 16. Well, I am a sinner preaching to sinners. I I hope you see yourselves as that. And that's the reality of what we have going on right now. Every time we open God's word and I get ready to speak. So I want to I open us up in prayer with the acknowledgement that God is the one that has to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to his word. So let's pray to those ends. God, we acknowledge that to you right now. Um, that we are, our sins are many, but your mercy is more and it covers us. And so, Lord, we need you, Lord, right now to illuminate our heart and our minds to the truth of your word that we serve a risen Savior. And Lord, we, uh, we have so many things right now in our hearts and in our minds vying for our attention. And we pray, Lord, that you would just overwhelm those things and give us clarity of thought so that we can receive the truth that we are about to read. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, really quickly, uh, if you do have a Bible, if you look down at Mark chapter 16, you're going to get to the end of verse 8, and most of your Bibles are going to have this funny little thing at the bottom that says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Um, So let me just take a few minutes to tell you about what we're going to do this morning, because in actuality, we're going to be stopping at verse 8 this morning, and the reason for that is that when we go back and we... um, research some of the earliest manuscript evidence, what we see is that most of the earlier manuscripts, in fact, did end at verse uh, 8. And so there's been a debate over the last 2,000 years between New Testament scholars and theologians and some of the the early church fathers about whether verses 9 through 20 were part of the original Mark text. And the reason why this has been such a debate is that if you're you're one of those smart people that, that knows about such things, when you read through 9 through 20, it doesn't quite fit in to the rest of Mark. The language is different. It's very what they would call unmarkian. I don't know. I've never used that word either. Um, So, and when you get into some of the vocabulary, it's different. It doesn't match with the rest of Mark. Uh, The style is different, the way that that Mark phrased things. We we don't get that, that the way that he sort of goes about um, as he was writing this book, dictated to him from the Apostle Peter. When we get to verse 9, man, the content, the style of vocabulary, it takes an abrupt turn. Um, So, because of that, we are just going to read through verses one through eight. We're gonna stop at eight because again, we find our earliest evidences that possibly, and this is what some speculate, is that it didn't end at verse eight, but something got lost in some of the translations. So later on in the second century, um, verses nine through 20 may have been added. Now, having said that, verses nine through 20 don't contradict scripture, but we wanna stick with what we know was part of Mark's intended Writings. So, uh, you know, if you go to a church and then they, they preach through 9 through 20, it's okay. They're not heretics. Um, but for our purposes, because we want to stand on what we know to be sure is God's word, and it's the original manuscript evidence that we have for God's word, we're just going to stop at verse, verse 8 uh, to, to keep it copacetic, whatever that word means, for our time 
this morning. So that's what we're going to do. I've probably talked about it too long, um, but we're just going to we're going to pick up with verses one through eight. Uh, last week, if you were with us, you remember we talked about the life pursuit of Jesus, how he was not just Jesus, but he was the crucified Jesus, and his life pursuit was actually the cross. That that's where he was heading. And he was heading there to accomplish the will of his father through obedience so that atonement, which was becoming a substitute for our sins, would be made for those of us that he saves, us, right? Those who are part of the church of Christ. And so one of the questions that we asked, one of the questions I posed was simply this. Do our life pursuits match those of the crucified Jesus? In other words, are we cross carriers, Do we carry our cross? Are we cross reflectors? Do we reflect the truth of the cross? And then finally, are we cross comforters? Do we comfort others with the comfort that we have received from the crucified Christ? Um, And what we're going to find out this morning is that we can actually be all of these things because the story of Jesus doesn't end with a man claiming to be the Messiah who died on a cross and we never heard from again. The crucified Jesus is also the risen Lord. And so because Jesus has risen, what that means for us, that means something. And what that means for us is that we can walk with him. Hence the title of our Mark series. We can walk with him in a new reality, with a new mission and a new future in which death has been conquered. So those are the implications for us. And so the question that I want to pose at the very beginning that we can begin to chew on and think through is simply this. Do you live in the reality of the risen Lord? Because here's what we know is true. All of us are acting upon a truth that functions as our reality. Let me say that again. All of us are acting upon a particular truth in our lives that functions as our reality or what's most real in our lives. So, follow me here. If truth determines what is real and we live out that truth, it's important that we are living out true truth so that truth and reality are not in conflict in our lives. Now, you guys have all... Well, maybe some of you have seen, you've heard of Romeo and Juliet, the story of Romeo and Juliet. Again, not given any spoilers, uh, this was written in 1591 by Bill Shakespeare. All right, so I'm not giving anything away, even if you haven't caught the DiCaprio version back in 95, like, dude, that's, 20, that's 22 years ago now. So we're, we're all square, not giving away anything with the ending of, of Romeo and Juliet. But here's what happened, right? Here's what happened for those of you who remember the story. Romeo comes to find Juliet dead, except she's not really dead. She drank a potion that made it appear that she was dead, but when Romeo comes in and finds her, he thinks that she's dead. So in his despair, Romeo doesn't drink a potion. Romeo drinks a poison. Romeo dies, because that's what happens when you drink poison. Juliet wakes up from her potion, sees that Romeo has died of his poison, and then she drinks the poison. And this is the cheeriest opening to a message you guys have ever heard. Romeo was acting upon a truth that functioned as his reality. But it wasn't a true truth, was it? It was only an appearance of truth. 
And so that's what we're going to see today when we get this final account from Mark about three women that were confronted with the truth of the risen Lord, but were steeped in an untruth and in an unreality, if that's a word, and in an unbelief, which we know is a word. So let me just pick up chapter 16, verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through to verse 8. And it says this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Then you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And this is God's word for us this morning. So what we have here, when we look down at verse 1, is a confrontation with grief. That's what we're met with here when we see the story of these women making their way to the tomb. The Sabbath is over. Three women who witnessed the death of Jesus have purchased spices to further anoint the dead body of Jesus. And of course, this recalls to us back in Mark 14, the woman who anointed Jesus when she broke the alabaster flask of Purinard, remember? And she poured it over the head. And if you remember, the disciples were not super pumped about that whole thing, right? That was cash money going down the drain over Jesus' head. So this was something that they were very critical of, but Jesus told them the reason for it in 14 verse 8. He said, she has anointed my body beforehand for what? Well, he says, for burial. And yet, now we have three women, along with a bunch of disciples that are nowhere to be found, who were completely unprepared for Jesus' death. And so what I want us to do is I want us to be careful not to miss some of the emotion, some of the humanity in place here. Not to miss the grief that would have accompanied and overwhelmed these women as they were making their way to the tomb of not just somebody that they had had an acquaintance with, but for one of these Marys, she was the mother of Jesus. So this was the death of a son. And for the other Mary, this was a friend, somebody who she was close to. This was a friend who had died. This was a son who had died. And in fact, you guys know this. Anybody who's visited the, the grave site of a loved one, you understand the emotions. You understand that sort of inescapable heaviness that exists when you're walking towards something of which cannot be reversed. And that's what we're seeing here. For these women, the images of Jesus on the cross, these would still be fresh in their minds as they just undoubtedly could recall 
the agonized expression on his face and the tortured condition of his body. I mean, they would still be in shock, as you or I would have still been in shock. Whatever future they had envisioned with Jesus was now lost to them. In their minds, a new reality had to be reckoned with, and they didn't know what that was. Because going to the tomb on the first day of the week to anoint the dead body of Jesus was never part of the plan. It was never part of the plan. Just like we are faced with things, they're never part of those plans, those well-measured, concocted plans that we put together where all the pieces are in place. And then it's like somebody comes in and ties the bow, and at a moment's notice, they're gone. They've collapsed. A week ago in Mark 11, they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Nobody's thinking Jesus is leaving. He's entering their lives. He's entering Jerusalem on a colt as their conquering king. That's the reality that they had finally gotten to with who they hoped Jesus would be. But nobody's throwing palm branches out right now. There's no celebratory feasting going on. There's no party. It was a silent aftermath, like these things tend to be. We celebrated, what was it, 16 years this month of of 9-11, what happened 16 years ago on 9-11. The week before 9-11, nobody thought that someday there'd be a memorial and a museum where the World Trade Center once stood commemorating the lives of 3,000 men and women who'd fallen victim to terrorist attacks. That was never part of anybody's plan. Nobody a week before who had an elevator ride up the World Trade Center thought that a week later that was going to be their reality. What does that do to us when we find ourselves in situations that are unplanned like that? Well, it creates grief in our lives, doesn't it? And you know what grief feels like? Grief is like a gaping hole. It's like feeling hungry but not being able to eat. It feels like there's something empty there that you're grabbing for and you're striving after and you can't fill it. That's these women. That's these women. But unbeknownst to them, here's what's interesting. Their grief had been shaped by something. And their grief had been actually shaped by unbelief. Their grief had been shaped by misunderstanding. And now we see in verse 3 when you look down that their reality had become somewhat of an immovable object now that was standing between them and their dead Lord. Right? There was a stone there now. There was an object. There was something that had created a barrier between them and their dead Lord. Does that describe you? Does that sound familiar to you? Is that something relatable to you? I mean, if you take an honest look into where your mind goes when a crisis hits or when an, you know, a decision, an agonizing decision has to be made or when you've experienced just a, a loss of debilitating proportions, does it look all the world, listen, does it look all the world like you believe in a dead Lord? Because that's the unraveling effect of unbelief. 
it obscures. It obscures the truth. It obscures what's actually true. It's like an immovable object like these women faced when they got to the tomb. We look down at verse 3, and they were saying to one another, it says, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? A stone. A stone was the last thing that they saw when you look back in chapter 15, verse 47. Again, this wasn't just, this wasn't just a little rock, right? This wasn't just like a game of marbles, like if for some of you live back in the 30s that you played with your buddies, you know, on the playground, right? This was like a stone that they said would have been something that would have, they would have had to have put into like sort of a, a trench and rolled as it would have went down into a crevice that would have locked it into place. So, yeah, you could roll the stone back, but it's not something that just some guy, you know, who finished some CrossFit could walk up and go, you know, man, this looks like something I just want to roll, woo, you know. Like, it's not going to happen like that, right? The stone just doesn't get rolled away like that. Their concern was legitimate, because their concern was, how are we going to get to our Lord who is dead? And there's a stone there. That was the image in their minds as they approached the tomb. Put yourself in the minds of these women. But here's our question right now. What happens when your truth isn't really true? What happens when you begin to act upon an untruth that's functioning as your reality? So my wife, Melissa, in the stripes here in the front, she saw this table a few months back that our neighbor made, and she was like, we can build it. And I was like, yeah, you know? So I did what all good, rugged men do. I went to my neighbor when M wasn't looking, and I said, Dude, can I buy your table? <laughs> to which he replied, no. You can build it, is what he said. I said, what, is this like a conspiracy between you and my, my lady here? I mean, what's going on with that? So, believe it or not, um, you know, I've been known to build things in the past. I've built tables in the past. I've even done that. I know it's shocking. Um, but I didn't believe we could build this table. But what I found was that it wasn't true. It was just that my neighbor's table sitting there, completed and beautiful, had become an obstacle to the truth. So we built it, and it got built, and now we pridefully consider ourselves ace carpenters. So pray for us on that, on that level right now. These women were acting upon an untruth. They had wanted a king. A week before, when Jesus is coming in on the colt, that's what they wanted. They were getting their dream. Their wish dream was becoming reality. They had wanted a king to rule their nation, to deliver them from the oppressive rule of Rome. But Jesus came as a king to rule their hearts in righteousness. It was different. Jesus had a different truth. In fact, if we look in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, one of the many messianic promises we read about in the Old Testament it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That's branch with a capital B, referring to Jesus. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And it goes on to say, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's the king that was always going to be coming. That is the truth 
of what God always had in mind when he first hatched the plan back in the garden to send his son to atone. It was righteousness. It wasn't just rule. It was a rule of righteousness to change the hearts of men and women who do not choose God. So despite their truth not being true, God confounds them. God confounds them because he is truth. And his son is the only way to true truth and true life. Look what happens as we read verse 4. It says, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. Do you see how the Lord did that? Do you see in a moment's notice you see how God surprises us when even in our grief, we are still seeking him. Do you see the lesson there? Even in our grief, when we seek the Lord, will the Lord not be good and rich in mercy and hope and surprise us by reminding us of something about himself? The stone had been rolled back, which was not expected. Because people didn't just roll these stones around back in the day like we said. But we get a little more insight if we go to Matthew 28. Because it tells us this, that there was a great earthquake. This is how it happened. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So here they are. They're greeted with this unexpected scene. They find an angel dressed in white who, again, Matthew informs us, had an appearance like lightning. And he was bringing good tidings of great joy, like the angels in Luke chapter 2 who formed a choir and visited the shepherds to announce the Lord's birth. The angels there saying, here is truth, here is comfort, here is hope. And naturally, the women are alarmed. They're, they're stunned, as we might say, uh, scared to death. They're being greeted by something that was unnatural for them. And that's, of course, because this is supernatural. And that's, of course, because as the church, we believe that God did supernatural things, right? We don't find natural ways to explain this. We say God is a supernatural God. And he sent a supernatural being that we call an angel because that's what the Bible tells us they are, to announce news to them to give them hope, and to provide truth that they had not yet embraced. The angel assures them. He says, yes, you are seeking the right person. He says, you have the right tomb. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Make no mistake, let the records show. And if you go to all four Gospels, this is what they do. They confirm that Jesus was raised. They confirm that Jesus died and was raised. That this wasn't the result of some weirdo conspiracy where Jesus' body was stolen, Jesus didn't really die. All of these things that sometimes come up if you're a cable aficionado, right? 
Every time around Easter, we like to talk about things that puts the crucified Jesus and the risen Lord at risk. But it doesn't when we take the claims and the eyewitness accounts that we have here in Scripture of men and women of who it would cost everything to say, we saw him. The stone wasn't there. It was gone. Even more so that we get the eyewitness accounts from women, not not killing you ladies, but women did not have the amazing reputation that you all have now, the reputableness that you guys have acquired in our modern era, right? So nobody took, nobody would take a woman's word in court. So the fact that all of these accounts tell of the women witnessing the resurrection of Jesus, why would they do that? There's some logic here that helps us locate what it is of the truth that's trying to be communicated to us here. And then the angel speaks seven words that would change everything for them. Have you ever had somebody do that to you? Have you ever had somebody tell you something? Maybe it was what you wanted to hear. Maybe you had no idea you were going to hear it. But just some words that maybe changed everything in your life. And we look down at Verse 6, and it said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. Then he says this, he has risen, he is not here. Everything Jesus predicted in chapter 8, 31, chapter 9, 31, in 10, 34, in 14, 25, and 29, everything Jesus said was coming true. It's happening exactly how he said it. So this hope now has been introduced into three grieving women. And then the angel tells them to go. So again, they're, they're, not, they're not setting up camp. They're, they're not here to, to, you know, sit down. You know, somebody pour some drinks. Let's like talk through this thing. No, the angels are like, go. Kind of like the angel in Acts 1.11. Remember when the disciples were standing there staring at Jesus after he ascended to heaven. And the angel goes, men of Galilee, Why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you will come in the same way as you saw him go. And so he says in verse 7, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So these women at first are confronted with the grief of the crucified Jesus, the unbelief that was torturing their souls, keeping them held captive to their untrue truth, but then received this announcement of hope. And not only hope, but mercy, which wake them up from their shocked surprise. What did we just read? He said, go tell his disciples. And not just his disciples, but he said, and Peter. Did you ca- I mean, do you catch that? Do you catch what he just said there? They're still... His disciples. He hasn't thrown them out. They didn't out-sin themselves or out-unbelieve themselves. And then he says, tell Peter that Jesus has not rejected him, but will meet him in Galilee, just like he said in the upper room two nights earlier after Judas had betrayed him. And what hope for these women to know that Jesus had not abandoned anybody, but his affection had not diminished. It was still strong. 
He wanted to see his fellas. Peter wasn't Judas. He had wept bitterly over his denial of Jesus. Peter's reality would not be a lifetime of regret like he thought it would, but it would be rejoicing because the Spirit of God had given him remorse for his sin and Jesus would receive him as a repentant and forgiven saint. That's who we're talking about here. That's the risen Lord we're talking about here. That's the hope and mercy of the risen Lord. And not only Peter, but Jesus would see all of them again, it says. All of his scaredy-cat disciples who bailed on him in chapter 14, verse 50, reminding them that his promises hold. The promises of Jesus hold. And the kind of people they hold, you know what kind of people the promises of Jesus hold? Weak men and women who lack understanding, who make arrogant boasts, who behave unfaithfully and are mired in unbelief and anger and cynicism. They hold us. His promises hold us. The new mercies these men and women received are the same ones still available to us every time the sun comes up. They're available. They're there for the asking, for the taking. And then we come to this abrupt end in verse 8, just like that. Trembling in astonishment, fleeing in fear. This is almost worse than the ending of Lost, right? Or La La Land, if we want to keep it a little more current right now, all right? But some commentators have said that the kind of fear that we read about here, that the women left trembling with, wasn't necessarily a scared out of their wits kind of fear, but it was actually a more reverential fear. And this caused me to wonder about our own fear, about our own trembling before the Lord. And it caused me to ask if I lack this same sort of sobriety when it comes to the resurrection. Because I don't know about you, but I, I've never walked into the tomb of a friend of mine who sat up, walked out, and then left an angel behind to let me know what was happening. I've been faced with something of those dramatic proportions. So, should we not then pray for the same kind of fear and astonishment as we remember our own powerlessness against sin and death until God rolled the stone away from the tomb of our lives and resurrected us? Is there something in this abrupt ending that actually is for us? Because you know what? We don't see in Mark what happened to these women. We don't see how they responded. We don't see the aftermath. We can read some of the other Gospels and find out where they went, but it's interesting how this leaves us. It's interesting that all through the years, the Holy Spirit has wanted us to end on verse 8. Astonishment, trembling, fear, fleeing. What will we do? How will we respond? What is the risen Lord? What kind of place does he have in the crevices of our heart because we have a risen Lord it means that we walk with Jesus and it means that we walk with Jesus in the truth 
of astonishing realities for us. We walk in the truth of astonishing realities, whether we believe it or not. Here's three of those realities. Number one, there is a past death in your life and in my life because of Christ's life. What did it say in verses one through six? What did the angel say? What were those seven words? He said, he has risen. He is not here. What that means for us is that death has been conquered. That means our death has been conquered. It means that we now have a past death in our lives of those things that were killing us slowly or quickly. Because the risen Lord is on a throne and defeated death because God raised him, it means that we are now raised with him with a past that allows us to move ahead with a future that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. You have a past death. All of those things in your life tearing at you, that are eating at you, and the sin that still tears at you and eats at you, it's actually a past death. It's been reckoned with. Number two, a risen Lord means we not only have a past death, but we have a present mission. What did, what did he say? What did he instruct the angel? What did he instruct these women? It was so simple. He said, go and tell. Go tell. It brings us back to Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Just go. Open your mouth. Proclaim. Proclaim your past death is what he's saying. It's news that's so astonishing. It's news that's so life-changing and heartbreaking that we have to go and tell. It has to burst from us. So the risen Lord gives us a past death, a present mission, and third, future promise. Look what it says in verse 7. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. What he was doing right there was reminding him that everything Jesus had said was going to come to pass. Is that any different in your life as we read the word? Everything that Jesus promised these disciples that applies to us, which by the way is all of it, it means that we have a future promise that begins now that is like an anvil in our lives in terms of how it can be moved, shaken, or broken. It can't. Is there any promise that exists like that in our world? You cannot depend on anybody for that kind of promise. You know why? Because we are, are capable of lying and failing. Hear me. I'm not saying don't trust people. But there's only one who is trustworthy and true beyond any shadow of a doubt because of the testimony of the cross and the empty tomb. So let's flesh this out for our last few minutes. If you are a Christian, what this means, you guys following me? What this means is that the Lord shapes every moment, every movement of your earthly reality. Does that sound crazy to you? Do you think that there's a move you make 
that somehow God doesn't have his hand over? Do you think that there's a strand of hair that blows in the wind that somehow God doesn't have control over? Do you think there's a sneeze that you sneeze that God doesn't have control over? All things, all movements, all moments. It's your true truth. Everything these women had to go through leading up to the tomb were exactly what God had planned for them so that their truth would be true. It would be true truth that they might remember the day they ran to a tomb, listen, expecting to find a dead Jesus, but in fact found a risen one. Man, if you're a Christian, maybe you've forgotten that. Maybe you've forgotten that God called you to walk with a risen Lord, not a dead one. If these are true truths, then your life actually hinges now on different things, don't they? Your life actually hinges now on different accomplishments, different aspirations, and different affections now. It's all different for you now. It means this exhausting effort that the world spends towards accumulating monetary and material resources does not need to be your truth anymore. And you can live, listen, in a risen reality rather than a dead one. It means all of the ordinary but God-ordained things God has given you can be lived out now with a joyful abandon and purposefulness because an empty tomb has filled and secured your future. Well, what are some of those ordinary things, Big R? What are you driving at here? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to lay it out right now for you. You put gas in your car. Was that ordinary enough? You do your devotions. You cash your paycheck. You make lunches for your kids. You finish your homework, kiddos. You pray in the morning. You do the dishes. You go hunting. You watch the game. You shop for groceries. You discipline your child, please do. You help your friend. You work in the garage. You go on a diet. You get a job promotion. You invite your neighbor for dinner. You play with your friends. You mow your lawn. Please mow lawn, mine too. You plan a vacation. You go on a date. You purchase a house. You love your husband. You suffer through hard seasons. You take your kid to the soccer game. You watch a movie. You endure through sickness and disease, you pay your bills, you serve the church. I could go on and on. Do you, guys, do you guys get where I'm going with this? You can live your life as one with nothing to lose because Jesus gained everything you ever needed on the cross and secured it by his resurrection. So what we've learned in Mark is that you can walk with Jesus under the reality that you have a past death now and you have a present mission and you have a future promise that is unbreakable. You do all the ordinary, mundane, but ordained things 
of your life under the truth of that reality. Because the risen Lord is the real dream that really came true in your life. The risen Lord is the real dream that really came true in your life because all the longings of your soul are the longings of the souls of these women. You want your Lord back. The true longing of your soul is to have somebody that can promise you something that will not crumble or collapse into despair. The risen Lord is that real dream coming to real fruition throughout the realities of your life. This is not about having a better life. This is about Jesus being your life, whether your life ever becomes better. Because what we know about these disciples, as we get into the book of Acts, it wasn't dreamy. It wasn't dream, it was, they did not experience a dream life after that. But they experienced the life and reality of what it means to follow a risen Lord. And when you find yourself functioning under the reality of untrue truth, like these women, when all those things I just mentioned, that list, that list I just mentioned, when all those things converge and they become the center of your life, rather than flowing from the one who is your true center, that's okay. Because God is good enough to course correct you and draw you back to repentance and restoration. That's mercy. So have you been living in the reality of an untrue truth? Think about that as you go today. Are you like these women whose reality was a dead Lord instead of a risen one? Because the reality God provided by raising Christ will always be what's most true in a person's life who has been raised with Christ. And the end will be joy. Let's pray. God, we know when we read about your crucifixion and your resurrection, we know that oftentimes we are just been so inoculated to what it is, maybe by our church background, maybe it's something that doesn't feel real to us, maybe it's something we've heard for the first time in this way, and we don't know what to do with it, but yet we feel something pulsing inside of us. We feel something that's off-center with the things that we've been pursuing, with the lives that we've been living. So Lord, we just pray right now, Lord, that we would be a church that lives in the reality of a risen Lord, that we would be a church that is gripped with our past death and our present mission and our future promise, Lord, that Worcester would be a changed community because we are people that are living under a true reality. Lord, convict our hearts this morning. Let us go through the ordinary and the mundane movements of our lives with the hope and the glory of this truth, knowing that everything we do gives testimony and gives witness to a Lord who is not still lying in a tomb. 
Lord, let that truth change us. Let it sanctify us. Let us grow ever more deeply in it, Lord, as we seek your grace and your mercy as obedient saints. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Together we said, amen.